Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you once again for taking the time to hang out with me and hopefully learn some new things. And this week will be yet again another episode in the series of Those We Don't Speak Of. If I were you, I'd be a Zionist. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. And this week, in particular, we're going to be talking about something called the Israel Project. Now, what is that? We're going to be reading from several sources on this. Pretty interesting. And it's actually based, and this shouldn't be a surprise, in America or was based in America. And we'll just go ahead and start off with the show because I'm all about getting down to business and not fooling around. You guys don't need my opinion on everything. I want to just kind of inform you, and of course I will give you a little bit of my opinion, but mostly just trying to inform you so you can take your research to the next level. This is the Israel Times, and this is way back on January 2015. Title, DC-based command center fights Israel's war of ideas. Subtitle, Facing Coordinated and Sophisticated Opponents of Israel in Cyberspace, the Israel Project is Shooting Back. Of course, they've always got to look like the underdog, and they've got to have a permanent, permanent victim mentality, which allows them to get away with a whole lot of things. I'm not saying they're always wrong, but we know who is armed to the hilt. We know who is funded to the hilt. Now let's look here. Washington. Josh Block is a frenetic, sharp-tongued, non-stop PR machine with a preternatural ability to spit out facts and figures that bolster the case of the Jewish state. Since 2012, he has been the president and CEO of the Israel Project, a Washington, D.C.-based pro-Israel organization that has grown to mirror his personality. It is a fast-paced, single-minded, war room pumping out pro-Israel memes, fighting Israel's detractors in cyberspace, conducting polling and research, and helping to arm what Block calls a pro-Israel social media army. And of course, I will add that it is a non-profit. And we talk about these non-profits, these NGOs, foundations, and whatever else you want to call it, a lot of think tanks and different things like that, how they can really gather money and do all kinds of things that would be a little bit harder to do if they had to do it in a governmental system. So we'll go on to read more. To equip this virtual militia, the Israel Project has a rapid response team dedicated to producing infographics, videos, and other shareable products that are suited to modern channels of communication. 
During Israel's summer 2014 war in Gaza, its infographics, like the timeline of Hamas terror, were ubiquitous across social media platforms. Block says the rise of social media and the online journalism in the past decade has transformed the way influence in Washington is wielded and the pro-Israel community has been too slow to respond. Okay. A decade ago, the megaphone to the people was the press, he says. But nowadays, the people are the press. Users of social media are not just consumers of information, they are producers. Block says the anti-Israel community is taking advantage of this transparency revolution more quickly and in a more sophisticated way than Israel's defenders. Quote, how does something so false and ridiculous like the idea that Israel isn't on a part... Oh, God. Quote, how does something so false and ridiculous like the idea that Israel is an apartheid state, becomes something that the U.S. Secretary of State uses as a lazy aphorism. That's almost laughable. Israel's detractors have built a very sophisticated ecosystem that produces an echo chamber effect, he says. They have built a system that can build and sustain a meme, a group of ideas that become a cultural fact. The way it works, he says, is the interconnected self-referential network of anti-Israel bloggers introduces a piece of information online, and then moves it across the system closer to the mainstream where it will get laundered by the UN, an NGO, or think tank. Eventually, Bloch says, even the most vile and absurd accusations against Israel will be considered legitimate discourse. So I won't read the rest of it. It's just basically how... They saw that the truth was getting out, and they had to capitalize on that and turn it around the other way and use technology to make it look like, of course, Israel is some kind of awesome, wonderful government, and they have not done a thing wrong, and they're just being targeted, as always, by all these horrible people. But I will also mention, too, in 2012... Block publicly blasted a progressive Washington think tank and website for using such terms as apartheid and Israel firsters, people who put Israel's interests above America. (laughs) It's so silly when you uh, understand that your representatives have to sign a freaking contract saying that they'll support the Israel lobby. And obviously, as we've talked about in the past, All your top politicians appear at APAC, whether they're Republican or Democrat. And that's not some kind of accident or just happenstance. It also says here, he has also called J Street a gnat in the Israel debate and a fringe organization with no credibility. And of course, J Street is another Israel lobby. They're just kind of anti-war Mizrahi, the founder and former CEO, said it would be inappropriate to comment on the Israel Project's latest direction, saying that every CEO needs to find their own voice and way. Speaking of APEC here, the Israel Project relies on private donations and has a $7.5 million annual operating budget, about nine times less than APEC. Block says the group has tripled its donor base this year and added 100,000 new email addresses. Block's two most prominent hires are Omri Sarin, a political blogger and doctoral student based in L.A., and David Hazoni, Ph.D., a conservative Israeli-American writer who edits Tower magazine. That site, along with the Tower blog, is where the Israel Project formally injects its ideas into the Israel debate. Okay, I was going to stop reading this, but I think we're getting into something I do need to mention. Tips Publications that's the Israel Projects, are unique and credible, says Mark Dubowitz, an expert on Iran sanctions and executive director of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Democracy. A nonpartisan Washington think tank, by the way. The organization itself lives at the intersection of policy, politics, and public affairs. It is more necessary now than ever, and if it didn't exist, someone would need to invent it. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. Rabbi Abram Cooper, associate dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, calls the Israel Project incisive, timely, accurate, fair, 
to the point, and always relevant and on message. The Israel Project is passionately committed to Israel and the Jewish people, Cooper says. Now, just to let you know, the Israel Project has folded, but I think it's important to understand how this group took over and tried to kind of capitalize on social media and memes and that kind of technology. They're very good at it, and if you're already in media and already have a large presence in national or even global media, then these kinds of things can make a huge difference. Now, everyone knows Frank Luntz, or I presume you do, and maybe it's just me because I grew up in a time where he was coming up and I was watching Fox News all the time. Frank Luntz is the fella you've seen, little small fella with the uh, bad hair piece, and he likes to do these, what would you call them, these panels, I guess, after debates and whatnot, and he'll ask the people what they thought of a speech or a certain policy, And it seems canned to me, the people in the audience seem totally canned, and I think it is. But anyway, Frank Luntz has made a ton of money out of doing those and working with these different organizations. Now, here in the Transcend Media Service, it says here, Frank Luntz, The Israel Project, Spin Manual for Defenders of Israeli Policies, The Rest, Beginning of the Story. This manual will provide you with many specific words and phrases to help you communicate effectively in support of Israel. But what is the big picture? What are some general guidelines that can help you in your future efforts? Here are the 25 points that matter the most. Well, that's kind of weird because I don't see the 25 points, but they have the PDF here. And we'll look a little bit at the PDF. It's a, a nice one here. It's all colorized. Of course, it's got the as above, so below Israeli flag. It's got the British flag and a couple others. It says here we've got showing you the chapters here. Looks like there's like 19 or 20 chapters. Personal message from the author. So this is from Frank Luntz. I wrote my first language dictionary for the Israel Project in 2003. Since that time, Israel has had three prime ministers, Several stalled peace initiatives found itself the victim of an attack from its northern and southern borders and suffered greatly in the court of public opinion. On the other hand, the daily suicide bombings have stopped, and Hamas and Hezbollah have shown themselves to be the brutal terrorist organizations that Israel created. Oh, excuse me, uh, I slipped up. That Israel has warned about. The more things change, the more they stay the same. All of the material in this document is new or updated based on research conducted in 2008 and 2009. Some of the language will be familiar. Most of the words that work, quotes, words that work, boxes come from Israeli representatives and spokespeople. But the polling, strategic recommendations, and guidance are all based on the current situation. I hope that advocates for Israel will benefit from the massive amount of work that went into the creation of this booklet. I also hope that this will be the last Israel language dictionary I ever have to craft because we hope that all the Palestinians and Arabs and Gentiles are killed. No, I'm just kidding. And remember, it's not what you say that counts, it's what people hear. Hmm, okay. Think about that for a minute. Okay, so he's got chapter one, the 25 rules for effective communication, okay? It says... Persuadables won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Show empathy for both sides. The goal of pro-Israel communications is not simply to make people who are already in love with Israel feel good about the decision. The goal is to win the new hearts and minds for Israel without losing the support for Israel that it already has. To do this, you have to understand that the frame from which most Americans view Israel is one of a cycle of violence that has been going on for thousands of years. Thus, you have to disarm them from their suspicions before they will be open to learning new facts about Israel. Of course, you know, we've learned in this series that it's not been just an endless, endless time of violence for Palestine and the place of Israel. That is not true whatsoever, but of course the stories that we know the best are the times when they had war and violence. But if you'll go back again before the Balfour Declaration, several decades before that, when the Rothschilds started buying up the land in the Ottoman Empire, Palestine, there was relatively no real 
battles between the Israelis and the Arabs and Palestinians at the time and Christians. So that has been overstated by far, and that has been on purpose because they want you to think that it's just been nothing but all of these Arabs trying to kill the poor Jews in Palestine for thousands of years. Oh, now let's look a little bit farther here. The first step to winning trust and friends for Israel is showing that you care about peace for both Israelis and Palestinians and, in particular, a better future for every child. Indeed, the sequence of your conversation is critical, and you must start with empathy for both sides first. First, right. Um, Open your conversation with strong, proven messages such as, quote, Israel is committed to a better future for everyone, Israelis and Palestinians alike. Israel wants the pain and suffering to end and is committed to working with the Palestinians toward a peaceful, diplomatic solution where both can have a better future. Let this be a time of hope and opportunity for both Israelis and the Palestinian people. Unquote. Again, he says, use empathy. Even the toughest questions can be turned around if you are willing to accept the notion that the other side has at least some validity. If you begin your response with, I understand and I sympathize with those who, dot, 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 you are already building the credibility you will need for your audience to empathize and agree with you. Indeed, if the heart of your communication is a chorus of finger-pointing of Israel is right, they are wrong, you will lose more support for Israel than you will ever gain. Some people who are already supporters of Israel, may nod their heads and say, way to go, but people who are not already supportive of Israel will be turned off. You know, he's got this words that work. So what this basically is, is kind of like a psychological warfare. It's definitely kind of um, deceptive. You're trying to kind of fool people into believing that you want peace for both sides and you want uh, even a two-state solution and all those kinds of things. But what you're really doing is trying to trick them into being more favorable, of course, towards the Israeli GovCorp. And, you know, if that makes you mad, I would just say go back and listen to the other shows in this series because I've tried to tell the truth and I've tried to take most of the information from Jewish authors because I feel like they are insiders and able to tell us the whole truth. Because most books that you come across, if they're by Jewish authors, it's nothing but just this, this love fest for Israel and Israel's government, no matter what they do. There's, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. So I wanted to tell both sides and kind of get the side that you don't hear that often from actual Israelis. Because a lot of people cannot talk about this subject in the right way. And I think that, and I've said this before, I believe that a lot of people that do talk about it in the wrong way are possibly even controlled opposition trying to make anyone who wants to talk about this in an intellectual way, in a semi-fair way, look like racists. And so I think we need to think about that and actually look at some of these people maybe a little closer But let's look a little bit closer here. So he's saying basically be reasonable. Say there is never any justification for the deliberate slaughter of an innocent woman or child. Never. Don't pretend that Israel is without its mistakes or faults. Well, I think that's really smart because, like I said, a lot of these books do that. And, you know, you don't win converts like that. He says use humility. I know that in trying to defend its children and citizens from terrorists, that Israel has accidentally hurt innocent people. I know it, and I'm sorry for it. But what can Israel do to defend itself? If America had given up land for peace, and that land had been used for launching rockets at America, what would America do? Israel was attacked with thousands of rockets from Iran-backed Palestinian terrorists in Gaza. What should Israel have done to protect her children? My hand's up. My hand's up. I've got something. They should not have been arming Iran for years and giving them weapons that they could use against them. They should not have been arming the Muslim Brotherhood. They should not have been arming and supporting these organizations that ended up being Hamas and Hezbollah. Be careful of your tone. A patronizing parental tone will turn Americans and Europeans off. 
We're at a time in history when Jews in general and Israelis in particular are no longer perceived as persecuted people. <gasps> oh my God. In fact, among Americans and European audiences, sophisticated, educated, opinionated, non-Jewish audiences, Israelis are often seen as the occupiers and aggressors. With that kind of baggage, it is critical that the messages from pro-Israel spokespeople not come across as supercilious or condescending. And then he says words that don't work. We are prepared to allow them to build. Israelis cannot allow the Palestinians to move forward. They cannot permit or control or instruct the Palestinians to establish commerce, transportation, or government. If the Palestinians are to be seen as a trusted partner on the path to peace, they must not be subordinated in perception or in practice by the Israelis. There is anxiety around activity in the Middle East. The way you talk about it should not add fuel to the fire. He says, stop, stop, stop. Most of this document is written in a positive, hopeful, instructive tone. But there is one aspect of Palestinian behavior that you have every right to demand an end to and will win points by doing so. The more you talk about the militaristic tone and jihadist goals of Iran-backed terrorists by using their own words, the more empathy you will create for Israel. You remember uh, one of the shows that we did, we talked about how Israelis have been selling their technology and different things to certain Iranians for years. And, of course, we just talked about the uh, weapons that had been sold to Iran for a very long time. Let's be honest, America sold the hell out of some weapons to Iran for a very long time as well. Now he says, words that don't work. Achieving peaceful relationships requires the leadership, political, business, and military of both sides. And so we ask the Palestinians, stop using the language of incitement. Stop using the language of violence. Stop using the language of threats. You won't achieve peace if your military leadership talks about war. You won't achieve peace if people talk about pushing others to the sea or to the desert. Israelis know what it is like to live their lives with the daily threat of terrorism because they invented it. That's me. They know what it is like to send their children off to school one day and bury them the next. For them, terrorism isn't something they read about in the newspaper. It's something they see with their eyes far too often. And it says, number eight, remind people again and again that Israel wants peace. He says, the speaker that is perceived as being most for peace will win the debate. Then he goes into, Israel has had a long-term commitment to peace, and blah, blah, blah. And let's see. Americans want a team to cheer for. Let the public know good things about Israel. Once you have established that you care about both the Israelis and the Palestinians, and that Israel wants peace, you can begin the process of establishing a strong connection between Americans and Israel based on shared values and interests, including... Israel's cooperative efforts with the Jewish and Muslim citizens working together to create jobs, cutting-edge technology, science, and research. Israel's remarkable advances in alternative energy. They still are technology, by the way. The work Israel has done in Arab neighborhoods and communities to raise health and living standards, including access and full Israeli citizens to Israel's world-class national health care system. Is that a socialist healthcare system, by the way? And come on. I mean, they're literally taking people's houses. I, I've seen videos. I don't know if you guys watch the same you know, videos that I do. You're not going to see them on mainstream media. But literally, you can move over to Israel as a Jew. You get paid for it. And then you can seize Palestinians' houses. And I've seen that happen time and time again. These people are like, why are you taking my land? Why are you taking my home? And they're just like, leave, get out of here. So, you know, that's, it's, it's gotten so much worse, I think, than when even this, uh, this PDF was written, but it's meant to do that because, you know, we have studied in this series that they have meant to take the whole Levant, and that was from the start. They believe it's theirs, their God-given right to have it. So they're just going to continue taking land and starting wars. You read that uh, in Israel Shahak's book, uh, Jewish Fundamentalism in Israel, that some of these rabbis believe that these wars 
are purifying the land of Israel. They have to kill all these people to purify them, to purify the land, rather, uh, because these people are infidels. They're Gentiles, and they need to be gone so Israel can be purified. So the Moshiach will come back. So let's see what we've got here. I don't know if there's anything else. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. We could talk about this forever because we're just barely through the book. But let's see. Voters feel that Israel is our most important ally in the Middle East. So, yeah, they've got to continue to act like Israel is the only democracy in the area. And, of course, you know, what we think about democracy on the odd cast, uh, what we actually have as democracy, and how they use the term democracy to globalize all these countries and go in there and get their businesses and banks and people in places of power and influence so they can control them. So. Democracy is code for globalism. And don't, don't let anyone fool you guys. So they have here, this is a poll. In thinking about the United States and its relationship with Israel, which two of the following are the best reasons for the United States to stand with Israel? Number one, Israel is our most important ally in the Middle East. Number two, it shares our values, including freedom of speech, religion, press, and the right to vote. Israel is a partner with the U.S. in our fight against terrorism. Israel is under threat from Iran, a country that wants to wipe Israel off the map. God gave the land to the Jews who had to live there for thousands of years. Israel's citizens are vulnerable to terrorist attacks. Israel is working for peace for both sides. Israel works with America for alternative energy solutions that can help to reduce America's dependency on foreign oil. And Israel uses... Innovation to help solve problems in the Middle East in the healthcare and technology industries. And it's just got here, uh, don't talk about religion. America, who sees the Bible as their source book on foreign affairs, are already supporters of Israel. Religious fundamentalists are Israel's Amen Choir. Now let's read that again. Religious fundamentalists are Israel's Amen Choir, and they make up approximately one-fourth of the American public and Israel's strongest friends in the world. However, some of those who are most likely to believe that Israel is a religious state are most hostile towards Israel. They are just as extreme as those religious Arab countries they criticize. Unfortunately, virtually any discussion of religion will only reinforce this perception. So he's talking about the people who are non-dispensationalists. Therefore, even the mention of the word Jew in context with Israel, is going to elicit a negative reaction, and the defense of Israel as a Jewish state or a Zionist state will be received quite poorly. This may be hard for the Jewish community to accept, but this is how most Americans and Europeans feel. The exceptions are amongst the Orthodox Jewish and Evangelical Christian communities. The fact is that Evangelical Christians are more supportive of Israel and Israeli policy than almost any other subgroup in America, and sometimes even more supportive than the liberal Jews. The primary reason for this is that their religion tells them to do so. You can speak about God to those groups approximately one-fourth of America, but do not extend your comments about religion beyond that. Thank you, Schofield, and thank you, Jesuits, because they obviously planted the seeds of this dispensationalism so that Darby and Schofield could run with it and Blackstone could run with it. But uh, that's a whole other episode that we'll probably get into. I know we've touched on it in the past, but we really need to talk about it more in depth. Uh, number 12, no matter what you are asked, bridge to a productive pro-Israel message. When asked a direct question, you don't have to answer it directly. You are in control of what you say and how you say it. Remember, your goal in doing interviews is not only to answer questions, it is to bring persuadable members of the audience to Israel's side in the conflict. Start by acknowledging their question and agreeing that both sides, the Israelis and the Palestinians, deserve a better future. Remind your audience that Israel wants peace. Then, focus on shared values. And once you have done this, you will have built enough support for you to say what Israel really wants for the Palestinians to end violence and the culture of hate. Culture of hate. We've heard that before, right? So did this come from uh, Luntz? 
Okay, this culture of hate so that fences and checkpoints are no longer needed and both sides can live in peace. For Iran-backed terrorists in Gaza to stop shooting rockets into Israel so that both sides can have a better future. A simple rule of thumb is, is that once you get to the point of repeating the same message over and over again so many times that you think you might get sick of it, that is just about the time the public will wake up and say, hey, this person just might be saying something interesting to me. But don't confuse the messages with facts. All messages must be factually accurate. But the point is to bridge back to your message, for example, to show that Israel is a democracy that wants peace. And lastly, on this, and I'm going to put this in my show notes. I want you guys to check it out for yourselves if you want to. But here it says words that work, once again. How can the current Palestinian leadership honestly say that it will pursue peace when previous leaders rejected an offer to create a Palestinian state just a few short years ago and now refuse to live up to their responsibilities as outlined in the roadmap? Now, Norman Finkelstein's got some good information on that so-called plan that was rejected, and it had a bunch of stipulations that, of course, no state would actually adhere to. He goes on to say, How can you call it a cycle of violence when in reality, if Israel stopped fighting terror, the violence would not end? If they would stop assassinating people and dropping bombs on other countries, I'm sorry, I'll go on. If the Palestinians stopped terror, Israel would have no reason for curfews, fences, checkpoints, and other defensive measures. It is too much to ask that Hamas leadership condemn all terrorist activities, including suicide bombs. Is it unreasonable to insist that they stop killing innocent children before Israelis jeopardize their security and make concessions for peace? Of course, you know, when you push a people, or Hamas and Hezbollah for that matter, when you continue to push and push and take more land and bomb all these different people and assassinate different people, then people who don't have the funding that you have, people that don't have the weaponry that you have, they start doing suicide bombs. And maybe that sounds insane, but that's just the reality of it. People, when they get desperate, they do desperate things. Now, let's look a little bit at the folding of the Israeli project, okay? This is from jewishcurrents.org, and it says the rise and fall of the Israel project. A late cache of documents reveals how the pro-Israel media advocacy group operated. A leaked cache of documents reveals how the pro-Israel media advocacy group operated and the factors that led to its demise. This is 2020. Okay, the Israel lobby is in trouble. I don't know about that, but let's continue. The Israeli lobby is in trouble. Until recently, support for Israel from both political parties was considered ironclad. But the Democratic Party is beginning to change its mind, and its presidential frontrunner, Bernie Sanders, wants to condition U.S. military aid on Israel respecting Palestinian human rights. It's one of the few things that Bernie got right. Of course, he's labeled a self-hating Jew. It's kind of funny, you know, it's obvious that his presidential bid was sabotaged, and then he ends up supporting Biden, who's partially responsible for sabotaging it, or at least working for the people that sabotaged it. And if you don't believe me, just realize that Herzog, the uh, Israeli president, I believe, I think Netanyahu's the PM and he's the president, back last year gave Biden the presidential medal of honor or the presidential award of honor. So, as you know, Biden fancies himself a Zionist. Let's get on with it. To stem this trend, groups like the newly formed Democratic Majority for Israel, or the DMFI, are trying to frame support for Israel as a natural part of a progressive agenda. But the downfall of the Israel Project, or TIP, kind of funny, right? A once influential pro-Israel group that counted prominent Democrats as top supporters offers a sobering lesson for groups like DMFI. Once dubbed Israel's most effective media advocacy organization by Time magazine, TIP closed its doors last August after its funding dried up with Democratic donors fleeing the organization 
because of its advocacy against the Iran nuclear deal, Barack Obama's foremost foreign policy achievement. And well, again, for all you conservatives, if you're listening, Obama's administration was filled with Ashkenazi Jews. So trying to say that he was anti-Jewish, that he was anti-Semitic for making that deal is total crap because these presidents are not fully in power. We'll go on. Tip's decline reflects a new reality confronting Israel's supporters in Washington. The group found it impossible to balance peddling Benjamin Netanyahu's narratives with remaining influential democratic circles. At its height, Tip had deep enough pockets to publish its own news articles, take journalists on tours of Israel, host briefings with top Israeli officials, and feed newspaper editorial boards with a steady stream of pro-Israeli talking points, activities that helped the group forge relationships with mainstream journalists and ensure that the Israeli government's perspective would be broadcast to millions of Americans. Its abrupt closure left Washington without any comparable organization with true bipartisan reach. That's actually BS. We know, as we mentioned earlier, APAC gets all the top people. But let's see here. Right before Tip's closure, I obtained a cache of documents from inside the organization that reveals its activities in stark detail. It offers a blueprint for how Israel lobby groups work to shape the mainstream media narrative, combat Palestinian rights, activism, and diplomacy with Iran, and use their own media outlets and social networks to spread pro-Israel propaganda. At the same time, the closing of the tip shows the limits of those tactics when trying to appeal to a bipartisan audience. In the early 2000s, there was no organized progressive base capable of challenging the U.S.-Israeli relationship, and so attracting democratic support for a pro-Israel group was a much simpler task. Quote, it was easier at the time to be a liberal and staunchly pro-Israel. Palestinians had been unfairly portrayed as being so anti-American that they were dancing in the streets on 9-1-1, which was nonsense, said Mitchell Plitnik, a Middle East policy analyst and former program director of Foundation for Middle Eastern Peace. Hate to break that to you guys, but that was the dancing Israelis, actually. And that's almost been wiped away from mainstream media, but there are some reports out there about it. Some of those guys spent several months in prison, and I found a news piece on it, and I have the audio that I may play a little bit later on. But here we go. In 2002, as the second Infatada raged, TIP was founded by Jennifer Laszlo Mizrahi, a Democratic operative. She pitched TIP to funders as a way to ensure that Israeli views on the Middle East were integrated into mainstream journalism. To that end, TIP worked with journalists around the world, from Europe to Latin America to the Middle East, bringing them to Israel on delegations, sending out fact sheets and talking points, and often connecting them directly to Israeli officials. Members of both parties in Congress, among them Democratic Senator Ron Wyden and Republican Senators Susan Collins and Mark Kirk were on TIP's advisory board. Yeah, I think Mark Kirk is uh, hes on several boards that are pro-Israel. Under Laszlo's Mizrahi, TIP attracted the support of big donors like Seth Klarman, a prolific donor to both parties, and a hedge fund billionaire who gave the group about $6 million in total from 2004 to 2015. Paul Singer, another hedge fund billionaire who has bankrolled the Republican Party and who donated over $5 million to TIP beginning in 2012, and Leonard Leader, a former AOL chief, executive, and donor to Republicans and to a lesser extent Democrats, who gave $1.7 million from 2006 to 2016, according to tax documents, and separate document listings. TIP also had help from thousands of small donors, including some who worked for the Israeli government, officials who worked at the time for the Israeli embassy in D.C., and at Israel's consulate in Aruba, and at the government agency, Israel Bonds contributed over 2000 to TIP between 2005 and 2008. While that's a small sum of money compared to TIP's large donors, it reflected TIP's close working relationship 
with Israeli government officials such that they felt compelled to personally donate to the organization. One former TIP employee who requested anonymity to speak critically about a former employer said that TIP stayed in close contact with Israel's ambassadors to the U.S., Ron Dermer and Michael Oren, and often set up meetings between foreign diplomats and top Israeli officials, up to and including Netanyahu. In spite of her success as a fundraiser, Laszlo Mizrahi left TIP in 2012. She says, I was completely exhausted. I just could not do it anymore. I ran a 24-7-365 newsroom for 10 years, and I needed to be with my kids. According to a former employee I spoke with, some donors saw her departure as an opportunity to turn the group into a right-wing attack machine. Laszlo Mizraki did not insert tip into the middle of partisan fights over Middle East policy and did not attack prominent Democrats who strayed from the pro-Israel line. But that changed when Tip hired Josh Block, a pugnacious veteran of the Clinton administration, of course, a neocon, and former spokesperson for APAC, <laughs> to replace Laszlo Mizrahi as CEO. Yeah, it's basically an incestuous relationship, and it really doesn't matter whether you're on the right or on the left. A lot of these people have the same goals at the end of the day. After leaving APAC and before joining TIP, Block spent time working with Lanny Davis, former White House counsel to Bill Clinton, at a lobbying firm that defended known human rights abusers like the Honduran government that took power following a 2009 coup, probably brought on by American interests, unfortunately. In 2011, Block led a campaign to smear as anti-Semites Writers at the Democratic Party-aligned media sites Think Progress and Media Matters who were critical of Israel. Well, obviously, I'm no fan of those two, but we know that you can't say anything negative about Israel. And the right-wing media, you know, the mainstream right-wing media, don't. I mean, it is a screw-fest. Okay, Block continued to focus on giving journalists access to Israeli officials and publishing and disseminating pro-Israel fact sheets and reports. But where Laszlo Mizrahi had devoted resources to address Russian, Latin American, and Chinese perceptions of Israel, Rock shut down most of TIP's global operations and shifted the organization's focus to the Washington debate. Unlike Laszlo Mizrahi, Block came out strongly against Obama's Iran policy and repeatedly slammed Obama's opposition to Israeli settlements. The Israeli project under Block's leadership became hyperpartisan and vitriolic to anyone who questioned not only the pro-Israel line, but the pro-Netanyahu, pro-Likud, Likud Party line, said Eli Clifton, a co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and a journalist who has long covered Block. Clifton was one of the Think Progress writers attacked by Block as anti-Semitic. Block, who led the organization from 2012 until its demise, did not respond to a request for an interview. Now let's get down to these documents. The cache of documents I obtained provides more details of TIP's activities under Block, which reflect the pro-Israel Jewish establishment's obsessions in recent years, media coverage of Israel, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS movement, and how communities of color feel about the Jewish state. One document, a September 2016 report to the Jewish Community Youth Foundation, appealed for support for TIP's Intelicopter program, in which TIP paid for journalists and diplomats to tour Israel by sky. TIP boasted of its success in giving an intelicopter tour to CNN international correspondent Will Ripley. The impact was immediate, with Ripley tweeting to his 20,000 followers about the flight and the insight the tour gave into the country's accomplishments and contributions, the document said. TIP also connected Ripley to Israelis who live on the border with Gaza and an expert on tunnel warfare. Ripley went on to produce a CNN report about a Palestinian militant group, Hamas's tunnels in Gaza. No context about why Hamas might be digging tunnels or about Israel's devastating blockade against Gaza was given in the report, and nor did CNN disclose that the report 
was the result of a tour given by a pro-Israel organization, nonprofit. My ass. For Tip, the report was a victory. It's accurate, it's compelling, and it wouldn't have happened without the Intelicopter tour that enabled this reporter to get the facts, Tip told the Foundation. Ripley did not respond to a request for comment. In one document, Tip appealed to the Mira Reinhardt Family Foundation to support the Tower, the group's attempt at producing a pro-Israel media directly. They asked for $50,000 to support their Tower Fellows Program, run by Block. Tower editor David Hazoni, the brother of prominent Israeli right-wing political theorist Yoram Hazoni, and Aidan Pink, a former associate editor of Tower, who is now an editor at The Forward, which is a Jewish news site, which would identify the most talented pro-Israel student writer activists and bring between 10 and 15 of them to Washington to equip them for real-world challenges of defending Israel. Tip also portrayed itself as being a crucial part of the effort to bypass state laws that crack down on the BDS movement by prohibiting government contracts from going to individuals or entities that support boycotting Israel. Don't you just love all these guys who claim to be free market, yet when somebody says, I don't want to buy from a certain country, they try to force you to do it? Isn't that something else? But anyway... In a 2017 grant proposal to the Blavitnik Family Foundation for 36000 Tibbs said, Iowa and Alabama joined Illinois, South Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Indiana, and Colorado to bring to nine the number that have adopted anti-boycott legislation. Tibbs played a key role in coordinating messaging for pro-Israel coalition in each state developing and distributing talking points for our partners' use. A handful of these laws have been struck down by federal judges who rule that they violate the First Amendment. Of course, we see the ADL and Chabad and others really stepping up this whole idea of hate speech and anti-Semitic speech. We see so-called conservatives like Ron DeSantis signing these documents. Now, it says here, Worried about slipping support for Israel and communities of color, in September 2016, TIP requested $250,000 over three years from the Jewish National Fund's Baruchin Israel Education, probably Baruchin Israel Education and Advocacy Center, in order to develop strategies to improve Israel's standing in minority communities. Noting that the Movement for Black Lives platform had castigated Israel, TIP promised to lead an initiative to bolster support among communities of color with outreach efforts, polling to understand attitudes on Israel, tours to Israel for prominent minority reporters and opinion writers, and coordination of pro-Israel op-eds from progressive and civil rights activists. Trying to buy people off. How much impact these propaganda efforts had on Americans' perceptions of Israel is unclear, but they do show how Tip tried to tailor a pro-Israel message to mainstream and progressive audiences. In their messaging against BDS, Tip claimed the Palestinian-led movement discriminated against Israelis on the basis of national origin. They hoped that the bigotry that they wagered would offend liberals, especially those concerned with anti-Semitism, and their outreach to communities of color was a clear attempt to make inroads into a key part of the Democratic Party base. But pro-Israel messaging was always going to be a hard sell to progressives, especially when the product was a government helmed by a hard-right leader, Netanyahu. Tip itself recognized how much of a problem it was that they were associated with the right wing. You know, and I really think these people use right wing, left wing, Democrat and liberal so much. And I think it really turns people off. And they, they have this idea of what right wing means here in America as opposed to what it might mean overseas in different places in, in Israel and the Middle East. And it's slightly different and sometimes vastly different. Uh, but we read in one of our different, those we don't speak of series, how really when you're looking at conservative reform and orthodox Judaism, there's a lot of these social issues that they all agree on, which are pretty damn liberal. So people kind of get the wrong idea on some of this stuff. It goes on, when we hear that some see us as right wing, too close to BB, too close to the GOP, we sit up and listen. We can't be the media hub of the pro-Israel community if we're seen as shills for the right. 
One document, a draft of remarks block plan to make to TIP's board in the late 2016 read. But the internal contradictions of trying to sell right-wing Israeli policies to Democrats was impossible to overcome and eventually leading to the group's demise as its funding flow slowed. Now, it's kind of funny, too, because you look to right now and APAC is courting liberals and courting specifically blacks. And in the last primaries, I actually started looking it up, and APAC officially endorsed many liberals in these local and state elections. So so it's not just like it's in the right wing and that's it. It's absolutely a liberal thing, too. And I think it's just as simple as people being bought off. Top donors like Singer continued to give to TIP, but others like Klarman had stopped giving by 2016. It's unclear why Klarman stopped donating. It's our policy to not comment on any former grantee, a Klarman Family Foundation spokesperson said. But Klarman's politics have shifted in the Trump era, where he once largely funded Republicans. By 2018, he was publicly declaring he would fund Democrats as a result of his disgust with Trump. Donor data shows that last year, the vast majority of his campaign giving went to Democrats. Several foundations that once funded both liberal causes and TIP had already stopped funding TIP after Block came on board. The Shapiro-Silverberg Family Foundation, a donor to causes like Planned Parenthood, gave TIP $50,000 every year starting in 2008, but stopped after 2012, the year Block was hired. Similarly, the Gould-Shenfield Family Foundation, another Jewish foundation that funded liberal causes and TIP alike, gave 6000 in total since 2003, but stopped funding in 2012. Neither foundation responded to requests for a comment. It goes on a little bit on funding. Uh, let's see. In 2016, the group brought in over $8.5 million in donations. You know, I have to say, looking into a lot of these groups, this is relatively a small amount of money. It may be a lot of money to us, but I'm telling you, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations that do these similar things. It's all about Israel, you know, donating money to Israel, donating money to Israeli causes. A lot of these, too, are charities, and they're saying that they need money for Holocaust survivors. My Facebook feed is literally filled with them. About every third or fourth ad is to donate for a Holocaust survivor or a poor person in Israel or for the uh, EMS services in Israel. It's unbelievable. And I'm thinking, come on, dude, $3.8 billion a year in aid from U.S. tax dollars, several more billion in loan guarantees, and they make an unbelievable amount in tourism they're all invested in lab-grown meats and all these various things. I mean, they make it. I think they're like the seventh exporter of arms. It's unbelievable how rich that tiny little place is. Again, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it's about the size of New Jersey, and they receive an obscene amount of money, have a lot of millionaires and billionaires that live there. So I have to think that a lot of people are being ripped off, and a lot of good people are being used to get donations, and God knows what those donations are actually going for. So I'll end this here. I skipped a bunch of stuff. But it says, while APAC is in no danger of collapsing, its current troubles in appealing to Democrats were foreshadowed by TIP's failure to maintain influence with liberals. Now, I think that's changed quite a bit from 2020 because APAC has made much harder efforts to court Democrats and liberals. And, of course, you know, you see that Joe Biden, of course, went to APAC. Kamala Harris went to APAC. Cory Booker. I mean, there's so many, it's just ridiculous. And I've posted a lot of these pictures of them at APAC on my Facebook and Instagram and all that. And I don't even think half the people even know what APAC is. But if they did, they'd understand that it's basically a, a lobbying arm, a very powerful lobbying arm. And it's not the only one, of course. You have the Zionist Organization of America and many, 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 many more. And they're very influential, a lot of funding globally. And so you've got a lot of people with a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of influence, all coordinated together and have the same goals. And that main goal is to build up Israel and the people who, well, I won't say the average people, definitely not the average people, but the higher-ups in Israeli GovCorp, in their government, in their businesses, and the people who are invested in Jewish-led businesses around the world 
who may be based in Israel. So you got to understand what the big picture is because it's much more complicated than people think. And the average person basically has no hope of understanding. And that's one of the reasons I'm trying to do this show to help people to know what's going on a little bit better because we're given this super black and white kind of idea where conservatives support Israel and Democrats are anti-Semites, which couldn't be further from the truth. And again, Joe Biden, an admitted Zionist, and has been given an award as recently as last year by the Israeli government. So you really have two parties that are Israeli first, and it couldn't be more clear at this point, but most people have a blind eye to it or actually support it thinking that they're doing the right thing when they're actually blindly following people, at least these rabbis, who would just as soon see us die because they are actually prophesying that the West has to die so they can have their Messiah and have this utopia in Israel. So that's kind of all this show is going to be about today. So thank you guys once again for hanging out with me. I hope this meant something to you, and I hope you will share the show and share the information. All right, guys, I want to thank my patrons, and if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. I want to get to thanking my patrons. I want to thank Dread the newbie. Thank you, Dread. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, KF. Thank you, Cole. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you to that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, from the Daily Ruckus on Alternate Current Radio. Thank you for being a producer of the show. Besides AlternateCurrentRadio.com, you can find Ruckus all over TNT Radio as well. Thank you, No Evil Shall I Fear. Thank you, Mark, from Pusatonic.live. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you to Aaron. And last but not least, thank you to my friend, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Get on over to all your fine podcasting platforms and check out all of Jack's fine work. I also want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com for carrying my show. Get on over there and check out all their fine podcasts and music shows as well. We could all use more music in our lives in these trying times. So that's AlternateCurrentRadio.com. And I'll be talking to you soon, Lord willing. Cheers and blessings. And remember... Their order is not our order. See you guys. May God bless Israel. May God bless the United States of America. May God bless you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. They have questionnaires. Anybody running for Congress is expected to fill out a questionnaire. And they evaluate the depth of your commitment to Israel on the basis of that question. And then you have an interview with local people. If you get APAC support, then more often than not, you're gonna win. There is tremendous pressure inside the political process to make sure that the voters stay aligned inside either the Democrat or Republican parties. Why? Because both of those parties have been captured by special interests. And those special interests are quite frankly the antithesis of the interests of the people. And so we have all of these special interests that have positioned themselves in between the political decision makers and the people themselves. The process now is more responsive to those special interests than it is to the values and the wishes of the American people. And there's no more special interest that has any more influence than the pro-Israel lobby. My father had to ask the question publicly, what does Stone Mountain, Georgia have to do with Israel? What I was doing was servicing the needs of my constituents. And I was not allowed to do that because I did not toe the line 
on U.S. policy for Israel. What line is that that they wanted? Were you told directly that you had to toe a line or explain that to me? Well, every candidate for Congress at that time had a pledge. They were given a pledge to, to sign. And I was uh, new on the scene. And uh, so the pledge had Jerusalem as the capital city, uh, the military superiority of Israel. American Congress people have to sign this pledge. Yes. You sign the pledge. If you don't sign the pledge, you don't get money. So, for example, my parents observed this. I would get a call and the person on the other end of the phone would say, I want to do a fundraiser for you. And then we would get into the planning. I would get really excited because, of course, you have to have money in order to run a campaign. And then two weeks, three weeks into the planning, they would say, did you sign the pledge? And then I would say, no, I didn't sign the pledge. And then my fundraiser would go kaput. I made it public. This probably nobody had said anything about it. But I made it public. And then, you know, the excuse was, well, you know, those were just overzealous advocates for Israel. So then the tactic changed. But this is what is done for 535 members of the United States Congress. 100 senators, 435 members of the House of Representatives have to now write a paragraph, which basically says the same thing. So it's not a pledge, but it's a paragraph, and you post it, and, you know, there are these forums you have to go to at the synagogues or whatever. And then, you know, if you don't perform appropriately, then you don't get money to run your campaign. The problem is that it requires an awful lot of money to run a campaign.